These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Losing a child, I think, is perhaps the most horrific tragedy any parent, any person can face. One individual in history who really understood that kind of agony was Abraham Lincoln. We know Abraham Lincoln, of course, the 16th president, the man who preserved the Union, the Civil War, all those events. But he knew tremendous grief in his life. As a boy, he endured the loss of his mother. Just imagine as a a boy living out on the frontier, having that experience. In 1850, his little boy named Eddie was struck down with sickness and died uh, at a very, very young age. Years later, in 1862, while all the carnage of the Civil War is going on, Lincoln's second son, Willie, uh, also died from disease. And in those dark days of grief, people who were in the White House at the time just reflect on the tremendous grief that gripped the Lincoln family after the, the death of Willie. Lincoln's pastor, a man by the name of Phineas Gurley, ministered to the family in just some profound ways. Now, here's something you need to know about Lincoln. Lincoln was not a Christian up to this point in his life. In fact, he had toyed with atheism. He had, he had really entertained some ideas that people at that time were really ruled. Those are out of bounds, right? He questioned the scriptures. He questioned the divinity of Jesus. He was not a church member, didn't want much to do with God at all. But through the ministry of Pastor Gurley, as he continued to minister to the family, show compassion to them, give them the hope of the resurrection for this boy who had passed away, Lincoln began to experience a tremendous change in his life. Two weeks later, when he gave his address to Congress, for the very first time in his life, he, returned, he referred to God, not simply as God, but as my God. That, that little pronoun matters tremendously. Just from God to my God. A stunning transformation began to, to happen in Lincoln's life. In fact, by the end of the year, he began to wrestle profoundly with the will of God and what God was trying to do in the life of the nation. It was out of that struggle the Emancipation Proclamation came out. It was as a result of that struggle that Lincoln went to Gettysburg, gave his famous address. In fact, his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, reported, by the time Lincoln went to Gettysburg, he'd become a profoundly religious man. And after his death, the pastor said that Lincoln knew who Jesus was, he understood the doctrines of Christianity, very well may have become a born-again Christian, though that's a debate that historians continue to have. That transformation began with the tremendous tragedy in the death of not just one child, but two children in his life. Just something I cannot imagine enduring. Well, in today's text, we're going to see a similar kind of scenario occur. There's going to be the death of a child, an only child. Jesus is going to come crashing into the funeral. He's going to show up to the funeral. By the way, if Jesus shows up to your funeral, it's going to be awesome, right? There's going to be good things that are going to happen. Jesus shows up to the funeral, and he has this awesome display of his glory, demonstrating who he is. And this, it's incredible. This, this tragedy really creates the platform for Jesus to perform one of his greatest miracles and to reveal his majesty and his glory to not just the town of Nain, but to the entire world and to us here today in the 21st century to see who Jesus is. He's going to invade, bringing joy out of grief. He's going to show up, turning a funeral procession into a parade. He's going to demonstrate his divine power, demonstrate his compassion. And here's the point of this passage. Luke 7, 11 to 17 is about showing us who Jesus is. In fact, that's what the Gospels entirely are about. They're about giving us a portrait of the majesty, the glory of Jesus Christ so that we would come to faith in him. So we read this, we should be seeing who Jesus is because who Jesus is is of eternal relevance. It's of timeless relevance to you and to me. 
So let's read our text. Follow along Luke chapter 7. We're looking at the paragraph verses 11 to 17, continuing on our study of the third gospel. And it came to pass the day after, or it could be rendered just sometime after. Remember last week he, he healed the centurion's servant. This is coming right on the heels of it. This is linked together as a demonstration of the compassion of Jesus. That he went into a city or a town called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Okay, there are a bunch of people with Jesus as he makes this journey. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier. And they that bare him stood still, and they said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he, that, that is Jesus, delivered him, that the son, to his mother. And there came a fear on all. And they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen among us, and that God has visited his people. And this rumor, this report of him, went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John shewed him. Of all these things, and John calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Tremendous account here, isn't it, of the the power of Jesus in it. I read those extra verses going into verse 19, because verse 19 is really the thesis question of the entire chapter. John's asking the question we should all be asking. Okay, we're seeing who Jesus is, but is he really the coming one? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the one fulfilling the promises of God, art thou he who should come, or do we look for another? Is, it, is Jesus the Messiah, the, the object of all of our hopes and our longings, or is it somebody else? Is there somewhere else we need to look? John asking that question. Now, we saw last week, at the beginning of the chapter, the, the, the first sort of part of answering that question, Jesus heals the servant of a centurion, showing, look at my compassion for those who are even outside of Israel. That's something that the Messiah will do. Right, verses 1 to 10, showing his compassion to not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles, showing his ability to heal. Here we see his compassion to a, to a widow, right? to, to the, the helpless, to, the, to the, the one now who is now destitute, raising the dead. Listen, if you can raise the dead, that says something about your identity and your power. So John asks the question, Jesus answers the question by saying, hey, here's the report of what I'm doing. I'm raising the dead, I'm healing, and the, the, the poor have the gospel preached them, fulfilling all the longings of the Old Testament, fulfilling all the promises that God made in the Old Testament. After the encounter with John, Jesus will once again show his compassion. There will be a woman who was a sinner, likely a prostitute, who comes to faith in him, and Jesus forgives her. That's astounding, right? Her sin is great, it's massive. And Jesus will say to her, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. So we see Jesus' compassion for, for all types, for, for Gentile centurions, these part, uh, people who are part of the occupying army, for widows who have lost their only children, a compassion for a discouraged prophet who's in prison, compassion for a woman who is repentant. All of these things together, answering that question, are you really the Messiah? That's the biggest question you can answer. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is he simply a great teacher? Is he simply a moral philosopher? Or is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior? Is he the Son of God? That's what this chapter is all about. So let's zoom in here and look at verses 11 to 17. And this passage is going to call you and me to trust. 
Like, not just, I agree with you, something nice about Jesus, not just the historic facts, but personally trust Christ's compassion, trust his power, trust him to be who he shows himself to be because he is Lord of all. So this, this paragraph's going to reveal Jesus to us. This is like pulling the curtain back, right? You're sitting there waiting for a, a, a play to begin, and the curtain begins to go up, and you see the, the set that's on stage, and the actors are coming out. The curtain is going to be pulled back just a little bit more for us to see more of the character and the glory of Jesus. So it's going to reveal Jesus to us, and so we would trust him. So what does it reveal? Well, it reveals first off his compassion. So verse 11 says that right after he had done the, the, the healing of the centurion, where he says, I've not seen so great faith, no, not in Israel, he went to a city called Nain. So he's been in Capernaum. He's now traveled roughly 25 miles to the town of Nain. Now, Nain's not a big city, so don't let that word city deceive you. We're not thinking like New York City. We're thinking a small village out in the hill country of Galilee. 25 miles, okay, on foot. So do you think going 25 miles, anybody ever gone that far before on foot? Okay, there's one back here who's done this, uh, who's gone 25 miles on foot. If you've ever run a marathon, 27 point, 20, or 26, whatever it is, I've not done it. I have no intention of ever doing it. This will be about a day's journey. So Jesus travels an entire day out to this little village that's out in the middle of nowhere. I almost like to think he's doing this on purpose. By the way, everything Jesus did, he did on purpose. He's going to go an entire day's journey to meet the need of one widow. That's just incredible. So as he approaches the town, it's probably late in the day. If he got started early in the morning, you kind of picture the, the, the sun is going down in the, in the western sky. Huge crowd of people with Jesus. So just imagine dusty roads, no, you know, no pavement, so huge clouds of dust. So just picture the sun descending behind the, the, the hills of Galilee. This huge crowd with Jesus coming into this town, big billowing clouds of dust with the, the rays of the sun illuminating it. Okay, can you picture that scene with me? As Jesus comes close to the town gate, verse 11, it says there's many people with Jesus, many disciples, by the way. Not everyone who follows Jesus is a believer in Jesus. There's a lot of people who just kind of hang out to see the miracles, to eat the food. And then there are those who are actually committed. There's a difference between sitting in a church service and being a believer of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between being here and actually pulling a seat up at his table and being part of his family. Verse 12, it says when he came nigh to the gate of the town. He's coming close. Here comes Jesus up the hill to the town. Coming out of the town is a funeral procession. Behold, there was a dead man carried out. The the word translated carried out is not just the normal word for carrying. This is actually a technical term for being a pallbearer, right? The people who carry a body. The way this would have been done, the, the body would have been laid on a board, would have been wrapped up in a cloth. It's not a coffin like we think of it. By the way, the fact that the, the, the boy sits up, right, there's no lid, It'd make that kind of hard, bang his head. No, he's just laying out on a board. They're carrying the body out for burial. Typically, they would have done burial outside of the town, uh, often in, the, in caves. They would have buried them in caves, laid them on the shelves uh, in the cave, then come back a year later, collected the bones, put the bones into a box called an ossuary. It's just how they did things, a little different than today. By the way, archaeologists have discovered some of the burial caves outside of this region, uh, let me just make this comment really quickly. Nain, an actual place. Archaeologists have discovered this actual place. There's a town in the Galilee region today called Nain. It's spelled a little differently, N-E-I-N. But it's actually there. The events of the Bible occur in time and history. They occur in real places. This is not just mythology. This is not Mount Olympus and the Greek gods kind of stuff. This is real history at real places that you can go to identify. And listen, if you're here today... And you're like, man, I'm, I'm having questions, doubts about this whole Christianity thing. Let me say Christianity will withstand the, the most profound scrutiny. It is true. It occurred in history. You can go to this place where this happened. 
right, I'll get off my, my soapbox, get back to the text. There's this body being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. So why are there a bunch of people with her? Well, in, in Jewish piety, according to the rabbis, one of the acts of mercy you do is go to a funeral. So in today's world, going to a funeral is kind of a socially nice thing to do. You're like, oh man, I need to go to this funeral, support the family. In Jesus' world, going to a funeral was an act of sort of religious devotion to God. The rabbi said, if you want to show your love, you want to show your compassion, you go to the funeral. Now, the fact this was her only son and she's a widow means the whole village would have showed up to this. This is not just a few cousins who've come out for this funeral. Untimely death, tragic death, an enormous crowd of people with her. Typically, what the funeral procession would have been like, the widow would have been at the front of the funeral procession, then the men would have been in front of the body, and then behind the body would have been the women, and there would have been professional mourners. Okay, the Mishnah tells us that no matter how rich or poor you are, you need to have at least two professional mourners. You know what they do? They wail, they scream, they cry, there's tears, there's snot, they make a big to-do about it, right? That's, that's the situation here, just noisy grief. By the way, the fact that this is an only son would make it all the more grievous. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah 12, uh, talking about the day when Jesus comes back, there's going to be repentance. Zechariah notes, the morning will be that of an only son. Right? It's tragic if anyone dies. Right? It's tragic for a child to die before their parents, but how much more tragic for an only son. So picture the scene, Jesus coming up the hill, the funeral procession coming out of the town. But notice what Luke draws our attention to. He notes the crowds there, he notes that they're, they're the funeral procession, but notice the middle of verse 12. There was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Luke is trying to draw our hearts out in compassion for this woman. What a horrible thing to happen. Her profound grief. She's already buried her husband. I, I cannot imagine, love my wife, I could not imagine the, the grief that would go along with losing a spouse. But then to have on the heels of losing a spouse, to have, okay, I've got my one boy, and he looks, he looks like his dad, and he sounds like his dad, and he's going to be my protector, and he's going to be my provider, and he's going to make sure the bills are paid. And then for him to die. He's probably late teenager, maybe early 20s. Jesus calls him a young man. And then for him to die. She is all alone in the world. There's no daughters. There's no other family members. Completely abandoned. Understand this, in the ancient world, there's there's no social security, there's no social safety net, there's no welfare programs, there's no sort of local shelters where she can go live. She's totally on her own at the mercy now of the generosity of the community. This is tragic, not just for the personal reasons of losing a loved one, but it's tragic for where this leaves her socially. She would have been open to oppression, to people taking advantage of her. Uh, She would have been the epitome of the, the, the person that the Old Testament would say, watch out and protect the widow the fatherless, in this case, the sonless. This is profound grief. See, when the Bible talks about the reality of our world, one of the ways I know the Bible is true is it portrays the world accurately, realistically. We know that we live in a world full of tragedy and heartbreak, a world that is full of sin and evil and sorrow and suffering. The Bible does not look at the evil of this world through rose-colored glasses and just pretend, oh, it's all good and God's in heaven and everything's just going to be great and everything turns out well. This story's not turning out well so far, right? The the, the realities of the fallenness of this world, they just hit us in the face right here. Maybe you have been faced, come face-to-face with similar situations as this. You've come face-to-face with horrific evil and suffering and abuse and wickedness and crime and 
this world. And maybe you're beginning to ask, how could a good God allow these things to happen? The fact that these things are happening, the facts we're asking this question, reveals that there is indeed evil in this world. And guess what? The Bible gives us the only reasonable explanation for where evil comes from. It is an intrusion into God's world. And the only reasonable explanation for the outcome and the end of evil. One day God will do away with all of it. But it's here because of sin. It's here because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. By sin comes death. Think about all the other suffering in our world is basically the process of death, perhaps slowed down in, the, in, in suffering and in anguish, but it's basically death brought into slow motion. That's what suffering is as a result of the sin of, in our world. So this event underscores the utter brokenness of our fallen world, a world scarred by death, heartbreak, and sin. See the world's brokenness there, but I think what jumps out to me is the Savior's brokenness. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. On her. He doesn't just say, oh, this is a sad thing to happen, but his heart breaks for this suffering. Now, notice what Luke refers to Jesus as. He refers to Jesus as the Lord, right? Up to this point, he's referred to him as Jesus. He's referred to him as the Son of Man, other titles. This is the first time that Luke, as the narrator, refers to Jesus as Lord. Now, other people have referred to him as Lord, but now here's Luke sort of editorializing, referring to Jesus as Lord. This is not him just saying, oh, Jesus is someone we respect. For for Luke to call Jesus Lord, he is saying, he is Yahweh, he is Jehovah, he is the God of the Old Testament, he is the risen Lord. Remember, Luke is writing this many years after the fact. For him to call Jesus Lord brings up for the church the fact we're talking about the resurrected one who is alive, right, who offers forgiveness and grace to all who will receive him. That term Lord is entirely fitting because it underscores the authority and the majesty and the deity of Jesus. Which, guess what? If you're going to raise the dead, you're all of those things. He's going to prove it. He's going to use the title in verse 13, and he's going to prove it in verses 14 and 15. So as soon as Jesus saw it, when the Lord saw, having seen this, as soon as, as soon as he catches a glimpse of what's going on and recognizes what is going on, remember Jesus is fully, truly human and truly, fully God. He sees this through his human eyes, and recognizes what is occurring. He sees a lone widow at the front of the funeral procession and knows, wow, she's a widow. Knows this is her only son. Says he was, he had compassion. Compassion is a very, very strong word. It's, yes, to have pity, to feel sympathy, but it refers to the deepest parts of the, of the being, to the, to, the, to the kidneys, to the bowels. It's sort of saying from the depths of his heart, He felt compassion and pity for her. This is, Jesus is convulsed with deep emotional pain when he sees this suffering. Now you say, why? This is not just Jesus trying to be nice. This is not just Jesus virtue signaling, giving a like on someone's post on Facebook about, man, I'm having a rough day. This is a real deep response of compassion. Why would he be convulsed with such deep pain? Well, for one thing, he is the God who is infinitely merciful, but he's also infinitely holy. As the God who is holy, there's nothing he detests or hates more than sin, and death is a result of sin. It is because of his purity, because of his holiness, that he looks at the sin and the suffering of this world, and he doesn't just sit back and say, oh well, but he's grieved by it. He hates both the rebellion of sin against the creator and the destruction of sin against the creation. He's grieved by both. 
And by the way, he's going to do something about both. He's not going to deal just simply with the effects of sin, sickness and death. He's going to deal with sin itself by going to the cross. And that is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus deals not with just the effects of sin, not just mitigation, but he's going to deal with sin itself. Now, you and me, in our sin, our selfishness, that, that, that's sort of the default setting, right? That we come into this world as sinners. We're selfish. We care about ourselves. We might see some suffering and be like, oh, man, that, that's hard. That's rough. I'm sorry that happened to them. But to actually reach out and do something, that's not, that's not what we like to do. We don't like to reach out and serve. In fact, we can become very desensitized to suffering. We can become very numb to sin, especially the more of it you see. It's, it's a dangerous thing to begin to be desensitized to sin, to begin to, be, begin to be numb to suffering. But Jesus, in his utter holiness, in his utter mercy, never ceases to be shocked and horrified and grieved by sin and suffering. Why? It's an invasion into his perfect realm. He created the world. He said it's very good, and then sin comes in and begins to mess it all up, and there's suffering, there's death. It's an invasion into his realm, and so he hates it. It is a corruption of his creation. It is an intrusion into the perfect world he formed for his own glory. So this is incredible. Don't lose sight of the wonder of what is happening in verse 13. The heart of the incarnate Son of God is on display here for sufferers and for sinners. And this is true even now. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, he didn't just sort of go back into the ether. He ascended bodily. He is still God in the flesh, if you can imagine it, seated at the right hand of the Father. And his heart today towards us is the same as this. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, We have not a high priest who cannot, be, who cannot sympathize with our weakness. In other words, he does sympathize with our weakness. And he says this right on the heels of saying, He's the eternal Son of God who's ascended into the heavens for us. So here's Jesus on the right hand of the Father, and he continues to be moved and to be grieved and to have compassion towards the suffering, particularly of his children. So you should go through suffering. Where was God? God was... Seated in heaven, ruling over all things. And the heart of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was indeed moved with compassion towards that suffering. But this is not just good feelings that take no action. Notice what he does, verse 13. He had compassion on her and he said to her. So everything now is flowing out of his compassion. What does he do in compassion? He now speaks with a word to this grief-stricken woman who's probably just really at at the edge, right? He audaciously says, stop weeping. She she obviously is crying. He says, stop weeping. This is not just a harsh, like, hey, pull it together, stiff upper lip, just deal with it, be a stoic. This comes from a heart of compassion and kindness. This is a demonstration of his love, and this is a call to faith. Hey, you're only going to stop weeping if you believe this rabbi standing in front of you is going to do something that's going to change the situation drastically. So here she is, surrounded by these professional wailers. Have you ever heard people wail in grief? It's an eerie sound. When I was in Papua New Guinea, I went to something called a, a house cry, which is exactly what it sounds like. You go to the house and you cry, and there's a body laying in the middle of this hut, and everybody's sitting around just wailing at the top of their lungs, and you can hear it as you come up to the house. It's an eerie, grievous sound. That, that's what's going on here. And Jesus says, weep not. Earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, he said, bless are ye, that weep now, for ye shall laugh. The same word. He says, those who weep now deal with suffering, grief now. Those who do so for the kingdom will one day laugh in joy. So Jesus moves in. He moves towards the suffering. 
Sometimes when we see suffering, right, there's someone who's grieving. We're like, man, I, I don't know what to do. And we almost, it's kind of weird, right? We know someone is suffering. We know they're hurting. We know they're grieving. And we sort of stay away because we're like, we don't want to say something. We don't want to do something. You know what we need to do when there's someone who's grieving? We need to move in, not move out. We need to lean in, not lean back. Move in and speak words of comfort. Go sit with that person and show compassion. Sometimes the most effective moments of ministry will come through the smallest acts of kindness. So I can't do a big thing. I can't get up and preach a sermon like Pastor Sam. But you can go sit on someone's front porch with them and be a comfort. You can read Psalm 23 with them. You can pray with them. You can, you can write a card in the mail to be like, man, I'm going to send. I, I know someone who's suffering who's maybe coming up on, on the anniversary of losing a loved one. And be like, I'm going to reach out and show that I care. I'm going to channel the Savior's compassion. This reveals Jesus' compassion both then and now. But I want to just stop there. I want to just sort of cascade into this next point, which this is going to reveal his power. All right? It's not just his compassion, but his power that's going to be revealed. Compassion in the face of suffering is one thing, but the power, the power to deal with it is another. You can have all the compassion in the world about suffering that's happening in India, but you don't have a, a thing that you can do about it, right? And it's frustrating sometimes. But here's Jesus who has complete compassion and also infinite power. We have this thing going on in our world today. It's been given the name clicktivism, was what it was initially called, where you know, there's something going on and you're going to like and share a post and feel like you've done something to help. It doesn't actually do anything to help, but you feel better about yourself, so it's great. The other term it's become known for is what? Virtue signaling, right? Something happens and there's a, a shooting, there's a, some horrible wave of crime. Everyone likes and shares a status to be like, look, I really care. That's not what Jesus is doing. This is not just virtue signaling. This is not just window dressing. This is not just, I'm going to do something nice so I can feel better about myself. He is going to act. Listen, when it comes to showing compassion, yes, talk is a, speaking and listening is a wonderful place to start. We've got to move in past that, right? Take action. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 14. He came and touched the beer. Okay, that's referring to the stretcher that this body is on. Could be... It could be translated, like I mentioned, a a casket, but in this case, it's just referring to the plank that the body was on. He goes and touches it, and they that bear him stood still. So Jesus is now going to reveal his power through a powerful touch. With just a touch, he brings an entire funeral procession to a halt. This touch is saying, I'm about to do something. Now, here's the deal. The book of Numbers said that to come into contact with a corpse would render someone ceremonially unclean. Right? They wouldn't be allowed to go to the temple. There would be a process for, uh, for being sort of readmitted to the worship of God. But here's Jesus. He's not rendered ceremonially unclean by being around dead bodies because he is the life giver himself. Right? He's going to absorb all of the death, all of the suffering, all of the uncleanness into himself at the cross. And he's going to bear it away. So Jesus comes along with this powerful touch, this funeral-stopping touch as he begins to unleash his power. So verse 14, he comes, he touches it, and everything stops still. Maybe the professional whalers just turn it off, right, because it's all a show anyway. I imagine the scene is suddenly very, very quiet. You can hear the wind kind of blowing through. Everyone's looking at Jesus. What's he going to do? Funeral procession stopped. Crowd with Jesus has stopped. What's going to happen? The sun's setting behind the hill. The din of the mourners dying down as the Son of God is staring death in the face. What's he going to do? With these words, he breaks the silence. Young man, I say unto thee, arise. Okay, everybody's there watching. If you just say that and nothing happens, 
you got egg on your face. You, nobody's going to believe anything else you ever say. Jesus is laying it on the line here. He's, he's going to, to, to call for a miracle that everyone who's present, the entire village of Nain, all these disciples, all these multitudes, will be able to verify. Young man, so he brings that word to the front. It refers to a, a youth, to someone who is probably in his late teens, early 20s. Someone who, by the way, under normal circumstances, you would not expect to die. Even in the ancient world, right? High infant mortality rate. If you made it out of infancy, you have a pretty good chance of living a full life. Someone to die at this stage is just, it's just shocking. The way this is, the, the word order in the original, young man, to you I am saying arise. So he brings it to you to the front, just really highlighting, yeah, I'm speaking to a dead guy. Right? Jesus can do that. He can speak to those who are dead, and it's not weird because he's got divine power behind it. To thee, to you, I say. He doesn't say, to you, I call upon the God of my fathers. He does not say, to you, I invoke the name of the God of the Old Testament, the God of... No, he does this on his own authority. Now, here's why this is important. There's a very similar story in the Old Testament, 1 Kings. Elijah goes and he raises the son of a widow in Zarephath to life. But Elijah doesn't come and say, I, Elijah, say to you, no, he appeals to Jehovah God. Jesus is coming along and saying, guess what? I am the Jehovah God of 1 Kings 17. That's me. I'm the one who's able to do this. Here's the other thing that's interesting. Previous account, Jesus healed on the basis of the centurion's faith. There's no mention here of the widow showing any faith. This is not dependent on anyone else except the authority and the power of Jesus. What, what a wonderful reminder. Receiving the grace of Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with your merit or my merit. In fact, if it did, it would no longer be grace. right? If it was like, man, I meet these qualifications, I do these things, Jesus shows me grace... I can take credit for that, but it's not of works lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2 takes this illustration of death and says, guys, that's what you were like before you came to Christ. You were spiritually dead. You were as capable of giving yourself spiritual life as a dead person is capable of giving themselves spiritual life. You were incapable of doing anything to please God, to contribute to your own salvation. And then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy... That's awesome. Because of the great love wherewith he loved us, has raised us together with Christ. My question to you, have you been raised together with Christ? Have you been born again? Has there been a time in your life when you realized you were dead and you came to Jesus Christ and were made alive? So nobody is born into that state of just being spiritually alive. We're born into this world spiritually dead. And Jesus must come and give us life. He must bring us to a faith where we rely on him and him alone. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Have you been born again? Back to the text. Jesus says, I say unto thee, arise, which is not just stand up like a robot and walk around, but this is actually come back to life. And he that was dead sat up. Um, Lest we think, oh, he was just sleeping. No, Luke says, no, the, the guy was dead, Dr. Luke. Yep, the man's dead. He's wrapped up in a cloth. He's on his way to be buried. The one who is dead sits up. Man, that would be weird, right? Imagine you're the guy carrying the stretcher out. You stopped. Jesus speaks to the corpse. And the guy you've been carrying out just sits up. Like, man, I would probably drop the stretcher and run. That would be terrifying. Thankfully, they didn't do that. Um, he comes back to life. He sits up. And then it says he began to speak. That's an important detail. This is not just he's now upright now. We'll go prop him up in the corner and pretend that he's alive. 
By the way, there's, there's this monastery, I think it's in Italy, where they've literally taken the, the monks, mummified them, and like propped them up sort of under the church, making them look like they're alive. It's weird, right? That's not what's going on here. He's actually coming alive, and the way you know he's alive, he begins to speak. Communication. Verbal communication, sign that there's life, sign that the, uh, the soul has come back to him. Can you picture the scene? There's a stiff, lifeless body, a face that is just gray with death, no makeup, none of those nice little pink lights they have in the funeral home. And suddenly his eyes flutter open, life comes back into his face, blood begins to move through his veins again, his chest heaves with breath, and he sits up and starts talking. <laughs> Whoa, that is crazy. This is not a parlor trick. This man is alive. Now, I wonder what he said. Like, what did he start, start talking about, right? I wonder if he was a chatterbox before he died. And like, yep, this is the same Billy. He's still talking. Great. Uh, he sits up. He begins talking. Was he thinking, who are all these people? Why am I laying on a stretcher? And who is this guy looking at me, this, this rabbi who's standing in front of me? I don't know. But this reveals to us the power of Jesus, right? Infinite power to give life. This is something that Medical technology cannot bring someone back from the dead after they've been dead for some time. Not possible. Scientists cannot create life out of non-life in a lab. Only God can do this. This is a demonstration of divine power. Now notice what verse 15 says, and he delivered him to his mother. That is a word-for-word quote from the account in 1 Kings. In fact, it's the exact same words in Greek. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Luke quotes it word, exact word for word. This is supposed to make us be like, hey, this is kind of like Elijah, only better, because he does this on his own power. So he says there he gave the boy back to his mother. Jesus completes the, the process of restoration. Interesting, Jesus gives the boy back to his mother. Every child is a gift on loan from God. Right? Not given us as a possession, not given to you as a, this is my child, but on loan from God for a temporary amount of time, however much time God gives you with that child. Jesus gives the child back to the mother for more time together. Beloved, this is the hope that we offer to the world. That those who are in the graves will one day arise. The resurrection day is coming, right? Jesus is going to return. First Thessalonians says, that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. What Jesus did for this little boy, he will one day do for every saint, and it is guaranteed. He just does this, kind of pays this one forward, does it in advance a little bit, on the basis of the certainty of his own resurrection. He's one day, one day going to do this for all his people. If death is the end... Right? If we're just like, man, we're going to live on this earth, and we're going to die, and then we're going to go turn into stardust eventually. Christianity is a pointless religion. See, well, it helps people be good. What's the point of being good when it's hard to be good, and it costs you to be good if there's no eternal life? Paul puts it this way. If there is no resurrection, we're of all men most miserable. Right? Christianity is not just a religion to make your life better, to give you your best life now. Often Christianity will bring suffering and persecution and difficulty your way. It will bring temptations. The sins you used to do, you can't do anymore. If, however, there is a resurrection, oh, man, it is worthwhile. There is nothing greater than following Jesus to know this is my hope. The self-sacrificing ethic of Christianity is a profound waste of time if there is no eternal life and there is no resurrection from the dead. 
So when we say goodbye to a beloved sister like Luana that we did at the funeral about a, a month ago, or when you hear about the tragic passing of a young person, we as Christians have real, concrete, joy-sustaining hope. We have the audacious hope that Jesus is the death defeater. You see, death for the Christian is not the final destination. It's just the vehicle to get there, right? It's not the end of the road. It's just the off-ramp to a different road. It's the doorway you walk through to enter eternal joy with Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of Christianity that we offer to a world that has no hope. And it's based on the power of Jesus. Because one day he walked out of the grave After his death, he guarantees the resurrection of all those who are in him by faith. What glorious hope that brings to us. Finally, this event reveals his glory. And I suppose this is redundant because his compassion and his power is part of his glory, right? His glory, who he is. Here I'm using glory in the sense of his fame, right? In In the sense of his name, who he is, his identity, Look at the reaction in verse 16. And there came fear on all. Literally, fear seized all. Like just in an instant, aorist verb, right? This happened right then. Like the moment this happened, everybody was scared out of their minds. And for good reason. Just imagine you come to a funeral, you're sitting here, there's nice, quiet music playing. And the person in the casket gets up and starts talking to everybody. Like that would be freaky, that would be terrifying. And everyone here saw this happen. Imagine a gasp swept the audience, faces turned white, knees began to shake. This is a display of unearthly divine power, and it's terrifying. See, sometimes we get this idea that God is sort of this nice guy up in the sky, and like, man, if we could just sort of sit around and have a beer with him, everything would be great. No, our God is a consuming fire. Our God is holy, holy, holy. His ways are infinitely above our ways. If we were to enter God's presence in our unredeemed state, we would not be able to survive. We would have no chance of surviving any more than a paper airplane flying through the sun. That's our God. He is so glorious and great. When his power just begins to break out a little bit, it's scary. The only hope we have is to be redeemed and reconciled to him through Jesus. He is the mediator between God and man. But this fear then gives way to worship. Verse 16, they glorified God. So fear comes on all, and then they realize this is a display of divine power, so they begin to glorify God. They begin to give praise to him. The funeral turns into a street party, right? This is just now dancing, throw the stretcher over to the side, grave clothes, let's forget about that. There's a party that day in the streets of Nain. So what do they say as they glorify God? Verse 16, they glorify God, how? Saying that a great prophet has risen among us. Okay, there's thing number one they say, and thing number two, God has visited his people. They draw two conclusions from this. Jesus of Nazareth is a great prophet that God has raised up. By the way, is that true? Yes, partially. Jesus is Prophet, we saying prophet and priest and king. That's one of his anointed offices as Messiah, one of the three offices that he holds as Christ. But he's not just a prophet. He's not even 
a great prophet. He is the final word of God to mankind. Hebrews 1 tells us God who spoke in sundry times by diverse manners and the prophets has spoken to us in these last days by son. He is the final word of God. He's not just the messenger, he is the message. But why would they say, oh, this proves he's a prophet? All right? Normally you would think, well, a prophet makes a prediction and then it happens and you're like, oh, he's a prophet. He raises someone from the dead and they're like, he's a prophet? Well, why? Because some 850 years before this, the prophet Elijah had likewise encountered a widow at the gate of the village, a place called Zarephath. She too had only one son. She too had that one and only son die. And like Jesus, Elijah raised him from the dead and then gave him back to the mother just like Jesus. They're looking at this and being like, I don't know about you guys, but this really reminds me of 1 Kings chapter 17. By the way, you can read that this afternoon. See the parallels. They are stunning. Throughout Luke chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, there are about a dozen allusions back to Elijah and Elisha. They're first of the great speaking prophets as if God is saying, What I've done then, I'm doing again in a greater way through Jesus. 1 Kings 17, 23 is identical to Luke 7 and verse 15. This is deliberate. Just as Elijah's miracle confirmed to the widow at Zarephath that he was God's man, Jesus' miracle confirms that he is the Messiah. That's why they're saying not just a prophet, but a great prophet, a mega prophet is literally the word. Great prophet has arisen. Here's another really awesome thing. Okay, 2 Kings 4, something similar happens. Elijah's, uh, the guy who takes his place, Elisha, goes to a village called Shunem. And he also raises someone from the dead. Here's the thing that's pretty sweet. Shunem was just a half mile away from this. Like, that's pretty awesome to me. Jesus goes to almost the exact same place and performs the exact same miracle to be like, guys, I'm the fulfillment. Everything the prophets were looking forward to, that's me. I'm the fulfillment of God's word. I am the one who is keeping and fulfilling every promise of God. I am the object of the longing of the nations. It's me. Elijah and Elisha had to raise the boy by appealing to God. Jesus raised this boy by his own power, by his own strength. Are you getting the message? He is God. He is the final word from God. He is the fulfillment of every promise of God. Jesus is the heart of the scriptures. And that's why Jesus is the heart of our worship. We didn't come together today just to have a nice time with each other, just to do some patriotic stuff or to have a, you know, just to talk to each other and catch up on the weekend. We came here to worship Jesus Christ because he is the center of scripture. He's the one who we are going to be eternally worshiping when the United States is just a footnote in the history books. The kingdom of God will still endure and the worship of Jesus will stretch off into eternity. You know what we'll be doing a million years from now? Worshiping Jesus. He's what this is all about. It's all about him. Now, they also say this, God has visited his people. You think of the word visit. Oh, yeah, God's showing up. He paid a visit and sitting on the front porch drinking sweet tea. The sense of the word is that God has shown up. God has intervened in history once again. If you want to trace this word, Exodus 4.31, God says that God visited his people. What happened when he visited his people in Egypt? Stuff started happening, right? Miracles started happening. Plagues started happening. Red Sea begins to split manna from heaven. God intervened in history. In Ruth 1 and verse 6, that language is used again. This shows up in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 78, when the promise of John the Baptist, Zechariah, knowing the Old Testament so well, concludes God has visited his people. God once again has renewed his work to the nation. 
In this event, don't lose sight of this fact. Jesus is saying, God is not distant. God is not aloof. God is not just sort of wound up the universe and is just leaving it to just sort of work out on his own. He is involved. He is near. We see something of God's answer to evil in the world. Death came by sin, and Jesus came to deal with sin and death. This resurrection is a harbinger of his own resurrection, and it is a preview of what God is going to one day remake the entire universe. Like, that's crazy. And every time a sinner comes to faith in Jesus, it's a little down payment of what God's going to do one day of making a new heaven and a new earth. Death will one day be killed. Suffering will one day be expelled. Evil forever will be banished under the eternal reign of God. And praise God that it will be an eternal reign. Verse 17, here's the result. This rumor, this news, this report of him went forth throughout all Judea. Okay, quick geography lesson. He's in Galilee, 60 miles north of Judea. News of this is so profound, everybody goes and tells everyone, and it gets all the way down to Judea. The next verse, we find out John the Baptist, who's in a place called Machaerus, which is by the Dead Sea, way down to the south, southern end of the country. He's getting this report in a prison cell. Like, that's how big of a deal this is. This news goes viral without Twitter or Facebook. From the funeral procession in Nain, the sick room in Capernaum we saw last week, to the prison cell in Machaerus that we'll see next week, Jesus invades this world with joy and hope and life. All that we can ever hope for is found in Jesus. He's the one who rescues the outcast, who raises the dead, who keeps God's promises and is Lord of all. He proves what he says about him in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, how do we know he's Lord? He raised the dead. This wonderful work of resurrection on those dusty streets of Nain It points us towards another resurrection. A morning in a garden, not just a dusty street, but in a garden. Jesus would walk out of a tomb after being in there three days and three nights. After bearing the sins of the whole world, he defeats death. It's as if God the Father hangs a banner over the work of Jesus saying, Accepted. When Jesus walks out of the tomb... And he says, because I live, you will live also. He has ascended to heaven from whence he will one day return, bringing life. What wonderful hope that gives to us. One thing you ought to do sometime is go take a walk through a cemetery. You just go down the road if you want to Mobile Memorial Gardens. You want to go downtown to the Magnolia Cemetery and see some of the historical markers. As long as we shield ourselves from death thinking, yeah, we go to other people's funerals. Like, we don't like to think one day it'll be mine. When you walk through a cemetery, it's as if the graves say, as you are, I once was. And as I am, you too shall be. Right? We are all guaranteed to die eventually. So my question to you is this. Are you trusting in the one who raises the dead? Are you relying in Jesus Christ and him alone to save you, to rescue you? To bring you into God's presence when you die, you're going to stand before God, and you're going to face his judgment, and the verdict will either be guilty or innocent. And listen, the one thing that will matter is, did you trust in Jesus alone? Not, did you trust in your good works? Not, I'm a moral person. Not, I do good deeds. Listen, our good deeds are all tainted by sin. Did you rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ in him alone? Now, if you're not relying on that today, I would beg you, I would urge you, Turn to Jesus today. Call on his name today. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Promise of God that today you can walk out of Cloverleaf Baptist Church trusting in Jesus and being guaranteed eternal life. 
for us who are Christians, I want to conclude by just giving you a sense of the hope that we have, because I think sometimes we get sort of hopeless in this world. We're like, man, I've watched the news, and things are crazy, and man, what's going on? 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 21 ends with these wonderful words. Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, right, for these things are true and faithful. Right before that, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and shall be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are past away. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Father, we praise you for the hope of resurrection that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those today.